0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 23 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Carisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. FantasyLawGuy.com is where you can find my draft board. It is Fantasy Football Draft Week. I keep the ball! Uh-huh. I the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are we about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel They are who we thought they were! We let him on the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep it trickling the ball down the field, I suck, son. I suck. Hello. you play to win the game. Hartley. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. The NFL season kicks off. This week, a matter of days, and it's a huge, huge fantasy football draft weekend. I saw a poll yesterday with over a 1,000 responses, and the poll asked people whether they have already drafted for their main fantasy football league or whether they still had their draft this week. Over 50% of the answers said that they still had their main draft this weekend or this week. They have not drafted yet, and I think the vast majority of them are going to be Sunday night or Monday night, Labor Day weekend. And if you aren't using the fantasy law guide on fantasylawguide.com, you're doing yourself a grave disservice. I got to plug this thing real quick. You know, round by round strategy, explanations for every player on my draft board, sleepers at every position, even kicker. And whether you're a casual player or a super competitive fantasy manager, this draft guide will be extremely insightful. If you like winning, do not draft without it. I honestly think that you will be blown away with the detail and the analysis and the effort that went into this thing. And this is not promotional. There's no paywall. Completely free. I just spent countless hours, you know, my entire summer writing this 330-page draft guide from scratch just for fun. Just because I'm a huge nerd. But seriously, the Fantasy Law Guide, you know, my draft guide, tried and true. I get told every year from several people— hey, I use your draft guide and it helped me win my fantasy championship, or holy crap, your draft guide is so amazing. And if you're thinking to yourself, it probably just is like every other expert's draft guide or rankings out there, well, you just could not be more wrong. There's there's no legitimate draft guide on the entire interwebs that is as different as mine is. If you're a competitive player who has not seen my draft board yet, you will be stunned with, who is ranked where, and why. But look, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just trying to help you guys and girls out and remind you that this is draft week. And if you want to help your cause in your fantasy football league, you need to check out the Fantasy Law Guide on FantasyLawGuide.com. In today's show, we're going to talk about the recent news and recent updates to my draft board, which players have moved up, which players have been taken off my draft board, and the reasoning behind that player movement this late in the game. And if I have time, I'm going to talk about some of my personal drafts, some of the teams that I've ended up with. Six of my seven big leagues have drafted so far. The only one left is my highest stakes league, and that's Sunday night. But I'm not going to just talk about myself and my teams because nobody cares about my teams. But I do think it might be useful to go over roster percentage, like how many shares of each player that I ended up with and crucial decisions that I faced in my drafts using my board that you may face this weekend. And honestly, I'll talk about my r- regrets. I have a few selections that I've made that are literally keeping me up at night. Like fantasy nightmares. You know, So that all should be fun. You know, rehashing that. Before I do that, I wanted to address a request that I have been getting. Several people have asked me if I could draft for them. Like I'm assuming it's for an online draft. And they have asked me how much I would charge to take like two hours to do that. And a lot of people have not followed fantasy football as much this offseason or sports in general because of COVID and because of the uncertainty of whether this season was even going to happen. So I get it. And honestly, it's something that if you do want to do that, if you do want me to draft your team, I'm happy to work out some sort of deal with you. I am available on nights this week, except for Sunday night when I mentioned I have my high-stakes draft. So if you don't feel like dealing with the draft or you're busy that night and you have plans and me drafting for you is something that you're interested in, you know, you can definitely hit me up. I'm at FantasyLawGuy on Twitter and Instagram. Nick Garisco is my name. Obviously, on I'm on Facebook there uh, for those of you who know me. You know, what I charge will depend on prep time, buy-in, number of teams, et cetera. I mean, each league is different. Like if this is a competitive 14-team league with two keepers in different rounds and you have eighth pick and there's weird rules or scoring and I have to do draft prep for, then that's going to cost more than just like a 10 or 12-team standard ESPN or Yahoo draft with normal settings where I can just kind of walk into it and start firing away. And I wanted to charge like $20 For This service at first, but then my wife Rachel kind of put her foot down and she called me crazy and she reminded me that drafts are an all-night event, uh, which is a good point because I can only do a few of these per night, maybe even one or two, and and she actually said that I should charge my hourly rate as an attorney. I'm not going to do that, don't worry, Uh, but I appreciate her unwavering support and promoting this service on my podcast was actually her idea. By the way, never really even crossed my mind, but I'm willing to draft for people. I'm willing to be flexible. We can work out a deal that maybe it's like $50 because if, because if you're using me to draft for you, I'm assuming there's some kind of buy-in or money involved. It's not just for fun. It's probably a, a semi-competitive or extremely competitive league, and we can even do a percentage based on your return. So there's, you know, I get maybe 25% of the winnings if you profit. One person I'm already drafting for offered me a flat fee for the draft or $0 for the draft and 50% of the prize money if he wins. So that kind of thing puts pressure on me to decide. I went with the prize money. But yeah, if you want me to draft for you, reach reach out to me at Fantasy Law Guy. We can work something out. I have Venmo, uh, and we will dominate. All right. we have a We have some big news bits here. So let's get to that. Adrian Peterson released. Pretty surprising cut. But honestly, I am kind of kicking myself for not really seeing it coming. I mean, he was old. Washington is a young team. They're trying to get younger. They're trying to get faster. That was made pretty clear this offseason. New regime, new head coach, new offensive coordinator. And Peterson was signed by the old regime. And Scott Turner's offense has always had running backs who can catch the football. And Peterson is just a zero in the passing game. So I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I think fantasy football experts should have seen this one coming, or at least the possibility, myself included. I, I take I definitely take responsibility and blame for that. I mean I I, I even mentioned that Leno Fournette could get cut a month ago, but I never even considered that Adrian Peterson could. And that that's just odd. That doesn't make any sense. It's inconsistent. But nevertheless we do have to move on. We have to adjust. Fantasy football is a game about adapting. The beneficiary here, the winner, is obviously Antonio Gibson. And those who have drafted him already and probably got a steal because Antonio Gibson, even if you drafted prior to Darius Geist getting cut, Antonio Gibson was going like the 13th round of drafts. If you drafted after Darius Geist got cut, before Peterson got cut, then Antonio Gibson was usually like a a ninth or 10th round pick. I had him as a ninth round pick on my board, and I was actually above ADP on Gibson. And I've spoken about Gibson a lot on this pod, very popular expert sleeper like his ADP was already climbing after the Darius guys released. Now it's about to get close to like 50th overall. I'm guessing in PPR formats and Gibson, the team, the Washington football team drafted him at 66 overall. And it was a pretty high investment for a player who only played very sparingly at Memphis, only 77 career offensive touches. And they were really kind of split between running back and receiver. He was mainly a wide receiver at Memphis But that said, Gibson, great athlete, dominant in college when the ball was in his hands, albeit on a limited basis. Pro Football Focus credits him with 16 broken tackles on 23 carries, which is an insane rate, and 17 broken tackles on 38 receptions, 15 yards per touch. So Gibson was an elusive tackle-breaking machine in college, and albeit limited sample there. But Gibson, 6 foot flat, 228 pounds. Again, mostly wide out in college and 439 speed. It makes him intriguing, though, in PPR formats because he was a wide receiver and he does have good size and good speed. And Washington coach Ron Rivera said that running back slash wide receiver Antonio Gibson, I guess we can call him a running back now because that's what he's eligible for. And that's one of the reasons he's so valuable in fantasy football. If he was listed as a receiver, nobody would really care. But Ron Rivera said that Gibson has a skill set like Christian McCaffrey. And he's a little bigger than Christian, he said, but he's got a skill set like Christian McCaffrey. Rivera obviously coached Christian McCaffrey for two seasons. And he called him a versatile football player that we really think is going to be a guy that can get on the field early for us and contribute. And according to beat writer John Keim, the team views Gibson as a Swiss Army knife type of player. And this was before, that quote was before Darius Geis and Adrian Peterson got cut. Now it's safe to assume that Gibson is going to get the opportunity for a pretty substantial workload here. And Gibson, very high, highly rated popular sleeper among the experts. Again, his ADP is soaring. It already was after Darius Geis' release. He was kind of seen as a very popular sleeper. However, now that Adrian Peterson is out of the equation, I mean, this guy's ADP is just about to soar probably into the fourth and fifth and sixth rounds of fantasy football drafts. What makes him so attractive as a target is that he's going to be able to catch a lot of passes this season. And catching passes is extremely valuable in PPR formats. Studies have shown that a target is worth about 2.5 times more than a carry in a full-point PPR format. And the aspect that a lot of experts also love is that Scott Turner, son of North Turner, is the team's offensive coordinator. And North Turner, hugely successful track record, giving his running backs the rock. Rarely has a Norv Turner backfield been a committee, and he's coached up some excellent running backs that have thrived in fantasy football. Emmett Smith back in the day, Ladanian Tomlinson during his prime, Adrian Peterson for one year, Christian McCaffrey for the last two seasons, and Scott Turner has been groomed under Norv Turner. so You can deduce that he may prefer to give his lead ball carrier most of the touches if one stands out. And there are a few concerns, of course, First of all, the Washington football team is not likely to be very good. Washington may be like a 6-10 and team this season, and they don't expect to have a very good quarterback. The jury's still kind of out on Dwayne Haskins. He's still young, but it was not a very promising rookie season. And in either way, this is a bottom-half offense, most likely. And Mike Taglier did great research on this topic last season. Offenses that rank in the bottom half of the league in total yards and rarely support a running back that finishes in the top 12. So if you think Washington offense is going to be bad or below average, which I do, then Gibson's upside is likely capped because this offense is is likely going to be bad. And that affects scoring opportunities, sustaining drives, plays per game, positive game scripts. All of that will be limited. And we also have to remember that this is a third round rookie who is as raw as they come, right? Like he has barely received any touches at a small Memphis college. And likely the offensive line for Washington is also not very good, particularly on that left side. It's one of the weakest uh, left sides of an offensive line in the entire NFL. However, all that being said, you know, big picture view here, Gibson's unique skill set, you know, his receiving ability will make game script not really matter, right? Like he'll be able to still catch passes. That was That's what makes him such a sexy pick in PPR formats. And he's just a playmaker With the ball in his hands, he's a playmaker on a team that really, really lacks them. Like the Washington football team has no offensive weapons outside of scary Terry McLaurin. So yeah, Antonio Gibson being thrust into a potentially huge role here, and he has a skill set to really be a huge fantasy football asset at a position that is so weak at running back, you know, at that massive drop-off after the third round. And and he's just got a wide range of outcomes. Like he could end up like a total flop like Cordero Patterson, because he's a similar pay- player to Patterson. Or he could end up as this year's Austin Eckler and just be a total steal. But Bryce Love, you know, Gibson's backup, I need to put him back on the sleepers list. When I published the draft guide three weeks ago, Love was my number two deep sleeper at running back. You know, at that point, Bryce Love had had some buzz in training camp. And then Geis was cut, so I had to move him back up to my sleeper running backs rather than deep sleepers. But then there were reports that he was running with a third-team offense, Love was, like every single day. So I took him off the sleeper list. But now Adrian Peterson cut, and I don't think you cut Adrian Peterson if you aren't confident in your backfield with Antonio Gibson and Bryce Love, too. I think Bryce Love isn't in the equation there. The team also has pass-catching specialist J.D. McKissick. They have Peyton Barber, who's kind of a plotter, but coaches love that guy. So I'm okay with spending a 12th-rounder on Bryce Love. He's back to being a sleeper but Gibson is the guy you want to roster in this backfield because of upside and i have him at 53 overall on my board it's rB 19 which is a little higher than consensus right now normally i've seen him drafted around 55 and the 60 but if i'm in an actual draft i just don't know if i'm going to be able to pull the trigger on Gibson who is a project like we have to all admit that like we like the upside but he is a raw project here. I don't know if I'd be able to pull the trigger on Gibson ahead of like Will Fuller or Marquise Brown, two players that I love this year, and they're going after pick 50. So I don't know. To me, it's just I don't know if I'm going to end up with Gibson on any of my teams. I wish that I had already drafted him when his cost was so affordable, and now he just looks like a total steal. But too little, too late there. Leonard Fournette has been signed by Tampa Bay. And it's a great landing spot for him, according to my draft board. He didn't screw up any of the backfields that I highly touted on my board, which is nice. I had zero shares or exposure to Ronald Jones, and I had Jones right around his consensus ADP. I didn't hate him, didn't like him. He was just meh. He was just Ronald Jones. And I think Jones will actually start in week one. But I do think that Fournette will be the 1A in this backfield by probably midseason, season and it seems like a running back by committee, even with LaShawn McCoy getting some passing down work. But the coaching staff just doesn't seem to trust Ronald Jones, regardless of how much Bruce Arians talks him up. And even after the signing of Lynn Fournette, Arians still said that Ronald Jones is the starter and the primary back. He even called Lynn Fournette a hell of an insurance policy. And that may be the case to start. But the Bucks are an experienced team, Tom Brady a quarterback. I think they're going to want a veteran Back there, it just doesn't seem like the Bucks trust Ronald Jones, and that was my hesitation with moving Ronald Jones up and drafting him on my teams. I always thought that the Bucks were always going to be in contention to sign a free agent running back like Devonta Freeman. I never thought it was going to be Lionel Fournette, but it kind of that was my hesitation with Jones. Is that just all the hype there? We just never really got the indication that the Bucks really liked this guy. I mean, Bruce Arians, you know, talks a lot of game, but then his actions haven't really backed it up here. So so I do think Ronald Jones will get the first shot. But if he doesn't come out of the gates hot, I think that Fournette will be Tampa Bay's best back by midseason. And now that doesn't mean I'm trying to draft Fournette. It's an attractive landing spot and situation for fantasy because of Brady's presence. They could The running backs there could be in position to score touchdowns and catch passes. But my guess is of how this is going to play out is just that. It's just a guess. So I'm avoiding this backfield in drafts because their ADPs are remaining around the 70s. I think if McCoy wasn't there, you know, maybe I would kind of, you know, kind of like San Francisco where I liked Raheem most a lot more until the third wild card, Jarek McKinnon, was kind of thrown into the mix. I think if McCoy wasn't there and if I didn't think McCoy was going to get some of the passing down work, I'd be more inclined to be interested in either Ronald Jones or Lynn Fournette at cost. But this is a potential three-headed monster. I'm not really sure where it's going to go. My guess is that Fournette will be the lead back you know, as the season progresses. But I don't really want to spend a draft pick, especially in the 70s, on either Ronald Jones or Leonard Fournette uh, or LaShawn McCoy, for that matter, to really take that chance. So, So, yeah, that's probably a situation I am avoiding if my drafts are this weekend. I'll let somebody else take that chance. If I had to choose between the three of them, I would take Leonard Fournette. Okay, that is the news. So let's talk about player movement on my board. And I've made some tweaks to the rankings. The players I've moved up, A.J. Brown. And before yesterday, readers were in no position using my board to draft A.J. Brown. And that just didn't really sit well with me. And you still might not be able to, based on my board now, because you're probably leaning running backs and an elite tight end early. And by the time round four and five rolls around, A.J. Brown is usually gone. But I wanted there to be a chance that readers could land him in those rounds as a wide receiver one. So I moved him all the way up to wide receiver nine. And the reason I did this is mainly philosophical. I came to the realization that if you're going to go running back heavy, like let's say you open up RB, 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 and then tight end like Mark Andrews, in round five, you may not have a wide receiver at this point if you're following my board, and that's okay. I mean, you can get Calvin Ridley sometimes, Robert Woods, Tyler Lockett, Cooper Cup, D.K. Metcalf, Scary Terry. Those guys sometimes do fall to round five, but even though I'm more confident in drafting those guys and I'm more confident in that they that those guys will have good seasons rather than A.J. Brown, I would draft A.J. Brown first, and I apologize for the late movement, but it just kind of hit me Yesterday I was doing a draft and AJ Brown fell to round four. And I had opened up Ezekiel Elliott, George Kittle, and James Conner rounds one through three. And I had a late pick in round four. And Robert Woods was gone. And I saw AJ Brown sliding. And I was like, wow, I would really love to have AJ Brown on this team. Like I would really love to have AJ Brown as my wide receiver one. Because I realized, you know, even though he's totally boomer bust, that's who I want as my wide receiver one. When I open up with other positions just because of the upside, especially because in rounds five and six, I can get a Scary Terry or a Will Fuller or a Hollywood Brown. I can get those guys anyway in rounds five or six. So I might as well go for a guy who literally could have a top legit top five upside. You know, if everything breaks right for him and if he flops, that's okay. I'm still going to end up with two receivers that I love, probably Fuller and Brown. So, yeah. I mean, I want to practice what I preach here. I want the draft board to reflect how I'd actually draft. And my draft board is is not rankings. Like it's not a rankings contest. I don't need to move receivers with higher floors over AJ Brown. This is about drafting and this is about finishing first in your fantasy league, first out of ten or twelve. And sometimes it takes risks to do that. And sometimes it takes me drafting to realize what I do in certain situations. It's like when you flip a coin, and when that coin is in the air, you always, at that moment, you realize what you really want. And I think that's a notebook reference, but I don't know, man. I think A.J. Brown, you know, moving him up substantially, he's just definitely somebody that I do want to take the chance on as my wide receiver one if I open up with running backs and tight ends anyway because I can get Will Fuller or Marquise Brown after A.J. Brown if he falls around late round four, early round five anyway. And I was sweating— by the way, I didn't even end up with A.J. Brown. He got taken. But I was I was sweating out that pick badly. Like Robert Woods, Lockett were both gone too. But yeah, really wanted A.J. Brown there. So I'm making that change in the rankings to reflect that. So in this next change, I made changes to an entire tier of quarterbacks. And that second tier of quarterbacks, the Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, Russ Wilson. And most experts throw Deshaun Watson in there too. I don't. I see Watson as more of a tier three quarterback with Josh Allen and Matt Ryan, but it's impossible to feel confident about ranking Prescott, Kyler Murray, and Wilson. Like I've just kind of flip-flopped constantly on which one was going to be QB3, QB4, and QB5. You just make a great argument for all of them being QB3. And I've had Wilson at QB3 for the majority of the time, Prescott at QB4, and Kyler Murray at QB5. But I've since flipped Murray and Wilson and keeping Prescott a QB four. So Murray jumps up to quarterback three, which by the way, all three of these guys are ranked right next to each other on my board, literally back to back to back. You likely won't be choosing among them. Like based on where I have them, it's likely going to be more like a scenario where one of them falls around five and then you and then you pounce. So my rankings may not matter. Like, I don't want you taking these guys so high to where you do have your choice among these three quarterbacks, but I have moved Murray to quarterback three. And while I trust Russell Wilson and Dak Prescott more, I think that Murray is going to have the best game scripts in Dallas and Seattle and the Saints. They seem like the class of the NFC to me. Like I'm, I'm using a real football analysis here. Arizona, meanwhile, has a terrible defense. And we know Cliff Kingsbury is going to try to play at a fast pace. I think we saw Murray's absolute floor last season when he's healthy. And that was before his hamstring pull in week 13. Murray was quarterback eight in points per game. And that was him as a rookie. And Christian Kirk was his number one receiver last year. And he was playing through a high ankle sprain for the second half of the season. Kirk is healthy now. The team also, of course, added DeAndre Hopkins, one of the best receivers in the league. And as Dak Prescott and Russell Wilson have gotten older and better at throwing, they've opted to run a lot less. And I just think Murray is going to score a lot more points rushing than Dak and Russ do, and Murray is probably going to be running for his life behind that offensive line. That could be a good thing. I think we could see a Lamar Jackson light type of of year two leap from Kyler Murray, and I'm not saying Dak can't have a 40 touchdown season because with his amazing supporting cast because he definitely can, and if the Seahawks let Russ cook, he could also go wild. And I love all three of these quarterbacks, honestly, and my board reflects that. But Murray just feels like he could be the quarterback this year that everybody kind of wishes that they reach for in their drafts. So I'm moving Murray up to quarterback three. But I, I, I'm really happy if I draft any of these guys. If any of these guys fall to round five, I am pouncing. I also moved Matt Ryan and Josh Allen up closer to Deshaun Watson. And I'm ending up with a lot of Matt Ryan and Josh Allen on my team's I feel like the reason is because there's a drop-off in talent after round seven on my board. Like After Will Fuller and Marquise Brown and Tyler Boyd, after they go, it's usually Watson and Prescott and Murray and Wilson are long gone, like two or three rounds ago. But Josh Allen, quarterback 10 on ESPN, by the way, in their rankings, which I think is super attractive by low opportunity, and Matt Ryan are usually just sitting there. And because of the drop-off on my board, like the next highest players on my board, Zach Moss, J.K. Dobbins, and sometimes I can wait until round nine for them. Not always, but sometimes I'll take one of them in round eight. And then the quarterbacks, Allen and, and Matt Ryan, will still be there in round nine. And if they're if Allen or Ryan in there in round nine, I am smashing the draft button right there. Like that is that's automatic for me, because I do think that these guys are a clear tier above like Carson Wentz and Stafford and, and even Drew Brees. And I also think that it's just a a, big, a much bigger advantage, much safer floors for Allen and Matt Ryan than like streaming the position. Like Josh Allen last year finishes sorry, in 2018, I'll remind you of Josh Allen's extremely strong finish where he was quarterback one for the last seven games of the season in 2018. And he carried that over to finish to 2019, where he finished quarterback six last year. Josh Allen, the last like 24, 25 games, has been phenomenal for fantasy football purposes, and he's added. The Bills have added Stephon Diggs, one of the best receivers in the league, to that team. They have John Brown. They have Cole Beasley in the slot, and of course, Allen has a rushing floor that you know if he's he's not going to be Lamar Jackson, and he may not be Kyler Murray, but L- L- Josh Allen probably second or third most rushing yards, most rushing attempts, and most rushing touchdowns to project for quarterbacks this year. And it won't always be pretty in the air, but he is getting better each year. So I I love Josh Allen in the mid-rounds of drafts, especially if he falls to like round eight or nine. Matt Ryan, same kind of thing, but without the rushing floor. But he brings you stability, right? He's in year two of his scheme. We've seen his touchdown rate increase substantially in year two of playing with, I believe it was uh, Steve Starkeesian, uh, last offensive coordinator he had, and Kyle Shanahan, two offensive coordinators ago, when in year two, he won the MVP. And Matt Ryan, top 10 quarterback basically every season, like the last four years in a row. Great supporting cast Matt Ryan has. He's got Hayden Hurst at tight end to replace Hooper, obviously Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley. The Falcons have no running game whatsoever that we've seen at least. They didn't last year, and they have no defense. And they play 11 of their 16 games indoors. So this is just going to be shootout central for Atlanta this year. You know, I love getting Matt Ryan or Josh Allen on my teams there. I just think they have very safe top 10 floors. And, you know, I I don't know if the upside is substantial. Like, I don't know if Josh Allen can get us there with his arm. And I don't know if Matt Ryan can get there because he just doesn't have the rushing floor. But I think you're getting a quarterback in the top 5 to top 10 range That's just really safe. Whereas, you know, if you stream the position, you know, good luck. And you have to deal with those matchups each week. So I have added, I have also added Matt Stafford to my board. And he's a late riser as I'm finding out that I'm more and more upset when I miss out on him when I wait on quarterback. And Matt Stafford, quarterback 12, if I take a late quarterback strategy, he's one of the targets there because. Seeing as he's quarterback 12, especially if you're in a 10-team league and everybody's already drafted their starters, I mean, this guy isn't going until, like, round 12 or 13. In 12-team leagues, he usually goes around round uh, 10 or 11. But last season, Matt Stafford was quietly awesome, right? Like, he averaged 20.8 points per game in eight games last season. That was quarterback six pace. And according to Evan Silva at established the Run, Stafford was on pace for 38 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, In career highs and passer rating with 106, yards per attempt with 9.1, yards per completion with 13.4, and touchdown rate last season. And Detroit gave up on trying to establish the run, particularly after Kerryon Johnson went down last year. The offense was super aggressive when they were throwing. Stafford led the league in average depth of throw and percentage of passes that traveled at least 20 yards downfield. And although Matt Patricia's old-school ways remain. According to Warren Sharp, Matt Patricia's Lions ran the ball at an extremely high rate in the second half of games when leading at halftime, and it didn't work. The Lions averaged 2.7 yards a carry on those attempts and often squandered the lead that they got because of Stafford's aerial attack. Nevertheless, despite Matt Patricia's dinosaur tendencies, the Lions are set up to be great again with their downfield passing attack. Kenny Galladay is there, obviously. Marvin Jones, touchdown scoring machines they are. Tight end TJ Hawkinson is entering his second season and was talented enough for the Lions to take him in the top 10 of the 2019 NFL draft. He could have a huge sophomore campaign. They have all reliable Danny Amendola in the slot, and the Lions do not have much of a defense. They play indoors. Yeah, I mean, the Lions should have a nice time throwing the ball this year, so I wanted readers to be in position to draft Matt Stafford if they wait on the quarterback position And it's like round 11 and Matt Stafford's sitting there. Yeah, like let's take the shot on Matt Stafford and you can draft a backup quarterback like a flyer. Maybe take a flyer on like Joe Burrow later on. Uh, Lastly, in terms of movement on my board, I've moved Miles Sanders up to where he was before I moved him down when he sustained that hamstring injury a few weeks ago. Because all indications are that Sanders will be healthy to open the season. I've talked about Sanders a lot on this podcast. I did promise that if the Eagles did not... Uh, Reach out to any free agent running backs uh, like Devonta Freeman that I would move him back up because I'd be more confident that Sanders really was the guy and that what the Eagles have said about him was not just coach speak. And the Eagles did not bring in Leonard Fournette when they had the opportunity and despite Sanders' injury. So Sanders looks like the guy there, and now I feel more confident in drafting him high. I think that the experts are still... A little too high on him. I think he's a little overrated as a runner and probably overhyped in the expert community still. I think his ADP is still around like 9 overall. I'm not quite there to where I want to spend a first-round pick on Miles Sanders because I'm not sure if he'll stay healthy uh, all year. He's, He's a little unproven. And that's also kind of how I feel about Kenyon Drake as well. So I moved him right next to Kenyon Drake at 12th overall. And I I have them both graded as a second-round pick. So both players, Kenyon Drake and Miles Sanders, very similar prospects this year, like exciting offenses. They both catch passes. Both seem like they could be the guy. And both are relatively unproven, having just produced as top 10 options in a small sample size of like the last seven games down the stretch. So it's fitting, in my opinion, that they are right next to each other. I think that's a very consistent ranking. And I think that once the second round happens – you know, if Josh Jacobs or Joe Mixon, who I do prefer a little bit, if they're gone, if Devontae Adams, who's just like a, such a safe, great pick in fantasy this year, if he's gone, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Miles Sanders. I'm taking Kenyon Drake. Okay, I think that is the last of my player movement. I will keep my board updated as the final week of the offseason progresses. I know that they're – one of the reasons that I'm doing this Saturday pod today is because uh, final cuts – are today so if there's any big names that affect the board I will make those adjustments so you will have them for your fantasy drafts if you're drafting Sunday or Monday night or even sometime this week. a lot of drafts I know are like the day before the regular season but I will use the last you know 15 minutes or so of this episode to talk about my drafts so far. All right so I've had six fantasy drafts so far. three of them are longtime competitive leagues. For no money, or like a $50 buy-in, I should say. One of them is a low-stakes league, there's a $100 buy-in. One was a medium-stake draft, which is $250 buy-in. And one is a high-stakes league, that was a $450 buy-in. And and I have my highest-stakes league draft Sunday evening, experts draft there. And, and, but so far, out of these six teams, one is a 10-teamer, one is a 14-teamer, the rest are 12-teamers, and none are keeper leagues. And all our snake drafts, except for one, which was an auction draft, and five of six drafts that I've had so far have been super flex. And I commissioned three of those leagues. So keep all that in mind as I talk about kind of my player shares here. So in the snake drafts, I ended up with pick four in three different leagues. And then I had one with pick 10 and one with pick 12. And again, one was an auction. And keep in mind, these drafts were mostly two weeks ago. One was recent. And uh, so there are things that I would do differently here, but it's probably just best for me to kind of just give my shares and my exposure to certain players that I ended up with, so which will kind of help you guys and girls kind of see who I'm winding up with, like following my draft board to see what example teams look like if you're following my draft board. So I'll, in the first couple of rounds, I've ended up with Ezekiel Elliott in two leagues and Alvin Kamara in one. I have two Derek Henry shares and I have three shares of each of Josh Jacobs and Joe Mixon. So pretty, pretty standard, you know, based on my board. I mean, you probably won't be surprised by any of that at all. If you're following my board, I have two teams, with George Kittle and one with Julio Jones. And that kind of wraps up rounds one to two. Those are kind of my stars on my team so far. And I have four out of my six teams have James Conner on them. James Conner heavily invested. In James Conner's success, he's kind of one of my guys this year, and I'm also heavily invested, of course, in his health. Uh, two of my six teams are with David Johnson. I actually thought I'd end up with more exposure to DJ but based on my ranking of him, but I have not. I Usually what has happened in my drafts is I take James Conner in round three, and by the time round four rolls around, either I already have three running backs on my team, so I don't want a fourth in David Johnson, or David Johnson has been taken already. So speaking of the fourth round, I have three teams with Mark Andrews tied in there. And so basically, I, if I don't end up with George Kittle, I've likely ended up with Mark Andrews. There's one team where I'm rolling with Tyler Higbee at tight end, And there's also one team I have, Odell Beckham, and one team that I have, Adam Thielen. And I also, you know, in rounds four of one draft, I drafted Dak Prescott. And, and in one, round four of another draft, I drafted Russ Wilson. Uh, because again, those were super flex leagues. So, so far, I've taken a lot of the same players and a lot of the same teams, but it gets a little more hairy here, like in rounds five and six, because there's more variance based on my wide receiver strategy in rounds five and six. I'm kind of all over the map at wide receiver there because I'm usually just taking whoever falls, right? If like, I'm like, as you've heard so far, I'm usually going mainly running backs and elite tight end in rounds one through four. So typically... Rounds five and six and seven are receiver rounds. But by that point, I'm just kind of taking the best available. I don't really get to reach for players that I really like there. So so some of the players that I've ended up with who have followed me. I have Robert Woods in one league, which obviously I love. I wish it was more. I wish I definitely had more Robert Woods on my teams. Same for Tyler Lockett. Only one share of Tyler Lockett this year so far. Cooper Cup has... I didn't think I would end up with a lot of Cooper Cup this year. Uh, but he has fallen to me in round six of two leagues. So keep an eye out for Cooper Cup. He's, he just isn't a name that a lot of people seem to be. He's going late in drafts. He's, he's not you know somebody I'm thrilled. To, well, I am thrilled to get him in round six. But he's not. I'd prefer a lot of these other mid-round receivers over Cup. But Cup kind of tends to slip through the cracks in drafts. So keep an eye out for him. Again, I've got both leagues that I have Cooper Cup in. I have been able to draft him in round six. And both were 12-team formats. So pretty interesting stuff there. Same for DK Metcalf. I have two shares of DK Metcalf, both of them in round six. And that one makes a little more sense because his ranking, I think, is wide receiver, like 26 on Yahoo and ESPN. So it's more likely that you'll end up with DK Metcalf Uh, if you are waiting until like round six to draft your first or second receiver i have one share of calvin ridley that was in round five one share uh scary terry mclaurin that was i believe in round six early round six one share of dj chark that was late round five and then one share of tyler boyd which was in round seven actually and that was when that was because marquise brown and will fuller were off the board and i'm going to get to you know, my two favorite players this year in a second. Unfortunately, I have to mention here, since we're talking about round five, unfortunately in two leagues, I did pick David Montgomery in round five. Ew, David. David. Oh, yay, David. Yes, ew, David is right. And that was very regrettable, particularly in one league where I passed on both Zach Ertz and Mark Andrews to get David David Montgomery. And it just made me sick. And, and yes, Andrews was there in round five, and I actually passed on him. And, And I took forever with the pick, too. Like, I couldn't decide between Mark Andrews and David Montgomery. And I started to say, like, Andrews' name, like, three times. Like, yeah, like, Nick, obviously. Like, Andrews on the board. Like, round five, like, what are you waiting for? And I just got this, like, weird feeling, like, gut feeling that I shouldn't take Andrews here. I don't know why, even though I'd already taken Andrews in, like, several leagues and running backs were just, like, flying off the board. And there was a, a drop-off in tier after David Montgomery for me. And and I thought maybe because Andrews and Zach Ertz were both on the board that maybe one would make it back to me in the sixth somehow. Obviously, that did not happen. I don't know what I was thinking. It was just a total choke fest by me. It was my least favorite pick, like, taking Montgomery over Mark Andrews in the entire draft process. And I'll be honest, like, I was— fine with, with Montgomery in round five. Honestly, like the, the fact of taking Montgomery there wasn't the issue. It was just the fact that I passed on Mark Andrews to take Montgomery. That was the part that just kind of keeps me up at night. And, and this draft, it was just it was just a weird one. Like, I, I, like I've been happy with my teams after all my drafts, except for this one. Like I caught several breaks and ended up with better teams than I projected in most of all my drafts. But this one league it just i was just not on my game for whatever reason it was a zoom draft i don't know man it was just weird mistakes were made and i've been cursing myself about that pick ever since and and this was you know even before montgomery got hurt you know taking montgomery over mark andrews very painful like the i knew it like the second after i made the selection i wanted to take it back and now that montgomery did get hurt it's like the fantasy gods are just rubbing it in and the other league that I took Montgomery in was a 14-team league, and that was in round five. And I, I don't blame myself there. Again, I liked Montgomery before he got hurt at the time. You know, I wanted the value of 275, 300 touches in round five. And you had to have running backs and a 14-teamer. And I thought Montgomery was going to have a little bit of a bounce-back season. And, and hopefully he will heal well and resume his role as a primary back sooner than later. But yeah, I do have un- two unfortunate Montgomery shares again, who I was high on prior to the injury. Now I'm a lot more skeptical there. But either way, just so pissed off at myself for taking Montgomery over Mark Andrews. No excuse for that. Uh, But anyway, this is where it gets a little crazy because we're to that Will Fuller and Marquise Brown section. Will Fuller and Marquise Brown, obviously two of my favorite picks in all of fantasy football this year i'm targeting them around six and seven of every single draft and i've reached for them in some drafts and some i've just kind of had to sweat out because maybe i took one earlier and then i'm waiting for the other or some i went running back heavy and i've just had to wait and hope and pray that they'd fall to me like in round seven and i ended up with will fuller in four of six leagues so far and i end up with hollywood brown in three of six leagues so far, I actually plan to draft both of them this Sunday because it's a really competitive draft. So I'll be actually reaching. I just think getting Will Fuller and Marquise Brown in in round six and seven is just a straight print fest. And you guys know if you've fi- been following along at all, you guys know how I feel about them. So quarterbacks, my sweet spot has kind of been like I talked about earlier: Matt Ryan, Josh Allen, kind of the mid round. It's like a little drop off on my board after. Uh, Will Fuller and Marquise Brown. It's kind of enabled me to take Josh Allen in two leagues, and I have Matt Ryan in three leagues. And after them, I'll usually take J.K. Dobbins or Zach Moss, two kind of running back flyers, mid round guys that I like. High ceiling picks that won't really do much for you in the early season. In some of the leagues, I've had to take the quarterbacks first, especially in the super flex leagues. But in other leagues, like a non super flex league, I've had to take like Zach Moss first. And I was able to do that because usually I can land J.K. Dobbins or Zach Moss like in round eight, sometimes in round nine if it's super flex. So I'll have so I'll kind of mix in match rounds eight and nine with Matt Ryan, Josh Allen, the quarterbacks with J.K. Dobbins and Zach Moss. And I kind of get to look at my team and look at the format and kind of see what's more important to me there. And yeah, so I have four of my six teams with Zach Moss. He's one of my highest exposures this season one of the most frequent players on my team, Zach Moss, I only ended up with one J.K. Dobbins. I really wish I had more of J.K. Dobbins on my teams, but for whatever reason, whether it's me taking Zach Moss first and then J.K. Dobbins not being there in the next round or somebody reaching for J.K. Dobbins because he's kind of a, a buzzy or popular pick, for whatever reason, only one share of J.K. Dobbins on my six teams so far, which is which is something that I am not really, really happy about. But I do like all the Zach Moss shares. After that, it is Deshaun Jackson time. And I do not, believe it or not, have a hundred percent exposure to Deshaun Jackson. I mentioned last year a couple times in this podcast. I mentioned that last year that my only player out of my seven teams that I had a hundred percent exposure to, I had plenty of guys that, you know, like Dalvin Cook and the other players who were like on five of seven teams, there's only one player who had a hundred percent exposure to and that was Michael Gallup. I had Michael drafted Michael Gallup on every single team, and it's very similar to Deshaun Jackson. Michael Gallup at the time was going like in the 130s of drafts, and I was taking him around pick 90. So the fact that I was taking him 40 spots higher than his ADP, like I was going to end up with Michael Gallup on pretty much every team, and I did. So Deshaun Jackson is kind of like my Michael Gallup this year, and hopefully it pans out as well. We will see there. Hopefully he can stay healthy but I do, believe it or not, I do not have 100% exposure to Deshaun Jackson, as it turns out. And it is a surprise to be sure. I have d on five of my six teams so far. Uh, so Deshaun Jackson is, I think, my highest drafted player on all my teams, similar to Michael Gallup last season. I also have, speaking of Deshaun Jackson and kind of where he's going in like that or so I shouldn't say where he's going. He may be going there now closer to 90 because of the Jalen Rager injury. He was going in like the 120 to 140 range. I was picking him in, in, in around pick 90, and that's kind of still where I am. I'm kind of going in order here uh, based on like where I'm drafting these players. So Christian Kirk also going around pick 90, pick 100. I have two shares of Christian Kirk on my team. I have one Sterling Shepard, one Anthony Miller. I really, really wanted more Miller Miller time on on my teams but my league mates I guess have been really sharp to Anthony Miller like he's usually drafted around or two higher than where he's going in the rankings and and the people that the league mates that I've been drafting with have just seemed to view Anthony Miller as a sleeper like I do so yeah that's definitely one regret is not having more Anthony Miller I only have one share of him I also have a uh, winning Anthony Miller is going off the board So often I'm missing out on him. I'm usually ending up with Alan Lazard. I have two or three teams with Alan Lazard on my team. So hopefully he has a breakout season as hopefully he pans out as Aaron Rodgers' number two option in the passing game there. So now we're getting pretty late into the drafts. We're getting into the teens almost. And I do want to mention, uh, I would say probably rounds 11 and 12 is kind of where we're at. I do want to mention that in Superflex leagues, which I am in a lot of them, it is obviously my preference for leagues, as I've mentioned a hundred times in this, in this short live podcast, uh, my quarterback one, I'm usually getting, like I mentioned, Matt Ryan or Josh Allen. I have one team with Russell Wilson and one team with Dak Prescott, uh, but my QB two has usually been Jared Goff. I have Jared Goff on three of six teams, so 50% exposure to Jared Goff, and you can read my draft guide. I have a whole, like a page long of why I view Jared Goff as a very underrated player for fantasy football and in fact if I was just going you know QB late round quarterback in a one quarterback league where you just start one and I just kind of loaded my team up with an elite tight end and running backs and wide receivers and I don't touch my quarterback until late because I plan on streaming the position Jared Goff and then maybe like a Joe Burrow or something would be a great combo that I would want to get like in rounds like 12 and 13 back to back uh, but Jared Goff, 50% exposure. I have one Ryan Tannehill. I have one Teddy Bridgewater as my quarterback three. I have two Darnolds in quarterback three. I know that Darnold is not, if you're if you're not in a super flex league, I know that Dan, Sam Darnold's not really being drafted. So this only really helps you if you are in a super flex league. I like getting Darnold late because Darnold is probably the last quarterback that goes with secure, like total dra- um, job security. Where like when you get down to like quarterback 27, quarterback 28, you start seeing like, Mitchell Trubisky and Nick Foles. Like we don't know who's going to have the job for how long. It has been named that Mitchell Trubisky has been the starter, as I did predict in my last episode. But we don't. His his leash is just going to be so short, and he might get benched by like week four for Nick Foles. We don't really know there. Probably so. But you know, you don't want to be drafting one of those bare quarterbacks. You don't want to be drafting Tyrod Taylor. At some point, Justin Herbert is going to take over that job. Ryan Fitzpatrick at some point. Tua is going to take over that job, so you don't want to be getting to like quarterback twenty nine there. So I, Darnold's one of the last quarterbacks goes. He goes at twenty seven, quarterback twenty eight. If you're in a super flex league, you need a quarterback three. Um, he he's a pretty good option there, and I, I've been able to wait on him and get him as my quarterback three. Uh, but again, if you are not in a super flex league or two quarterback league, there is no reason for you to draft Sam Darnold on your team. If you're going for a late round quarterback two, like a backup quarterback, I would prefer. Teddy Bridgewater, Ryan Tannehill, definitely Joe Burrow. And I really wish that I had Joe Burrow on a team. But it's a lot of local leagues that I play in. So a lot of people, LSU fans, Saints fans, they draft Drew Brees high. They draft Joe Burrow higher than consensus. And I, you know, I have no problem reaching for Joe Burrow. For whatever reason, the draft just hasn't panned out that way. And i that's one of my biggest regrets during this draft season is not getting Joe Burrow shares, Uh, again, if I was waiting on quarterback in my, and I was in a one quarterback league or even a super flex league, Jared Goff and Joe Burrow would probably be the guys that I would be targeting there. I also have two, or I think it's one share of Drew Locke. He's another potential sleeper there and you can get him long after Joe Burrow goes. But again, Locke is more of a quarterback three in Superflex League. So yeah, if you're going regular traditional league and you just want to get a good backup quarterback on your team, Goff, Jared Goff, and Joe Burrow are my recommendations there. I think one of them will pan out and potentially be a top 12 uh, surprise. So I forgot to mention the handcuffs here. I have drafted Tony Pollard. Uh, to handcuff with Zekio Elliott on one team. I also drafted Alexander Madison and Chase Edmonds on another team, and I don't have Dalvin Cook or Kenyon Drake on those teams, so they are not handcuffs there, but you never know. Dalvin Cook might hold out. Dalvin Cook's one of the most injury-prone uh, players in all of fantasy football, and Chase Edmonds is also in a great situation of Kenyon Drake, who is pretty unproven uh, as a bell cow back. If Kenyon Drake were to go down, Chase Edmonds would immediately step in to be a top-10 running back, as would Alexander Madison. If if Dalvin Cook went down, so these are nice options after pick 100 where you can just you know swing for the fences. If nothing happens and they just stay backups all year, okay, well they just rot away on your bench. Who cares? It's round 10 pick anyway. But if something does happen and they get the right breaks (no pun intended) then to the starter then they will end up being league winners. So at, at that late in your draft, you want those types of boomer bust players on your team anyway. That is my philosophy at least. And speaking of that philosophy, I've drafted A.J. Dillon on way later than them. Of course, like in near 150. A.J. Dillon has kind of been my late round guy this year, like kind of my deep sleeper. He's on three of my teams. Uh, so 50% exposure to A.J. Dillon. Um, I don't, again, I don't expect anything from A.J. Dillon for the first half of the season. He is the third string running back for the Packers. I just like his skill set. I like how the Packers invested in him. I have a whole page on why A.J. Dillon is a good pick in fantasy football this year. Uh, You can go check that out on the Fantasy Law Guide. But I liken A.J. Dillon to a crockpot meal. You know, you prepare it, and then you just let it sit and brew and hope at the end of the day you've come up with this delicious feast. And again, if the meal never amounts to anything, if the meal sucks, then you know, oh, well, it was, what was, what was A.J. Dillon, your 14th, 13th round pick? You were likely going to cut that pick. Anyway, the misses don't matter. You need to be swinging for home runs, not swinging for singles. So I've been drafting backup tight ends on all my teams. You know, the experts don't really advise that that much, or a lot don't at least. I think this year, if there's any year to do it, it is this year. There's a lot of late round tight end. The class this year in the late round tight ends is just so, a bunch of athletic Prospects like tight ends, like eight through 24, honestly, and any one of them can end up being a top 10 tight end. Like it's just a total crapshoot. And I I like taking a stab at one or two for those reasons. And I've wanted Johnny Smith in every draft, and I've only ended up with Johnny Smith one time, which I just totally hate. Like I've mentioned some of my big regrets. Like I wish I had more, you know, I wish I wouldn't have taken. David Montgomery over Mark Andrews in that one draft. I wish I wouldn't have I wish I would have ended up with more Joe Burrow. I wish I wouldn't end up with more J.K. Dobbins. I wish I would have ended up with more Anthony Miller. Johnu Smith is just another player where I wish I had him on way more teams than I do. And I just hate that he's only on one team with the amount of I mean, there's like an entire page on the draft guide with why I love Johnny Smith as my sleeper tight end this year. And I the I've only ended up with him on one team. The reason for that is because is because a lot of my competitive leagues, there's been some uh, sharp players who have just kind of been on the same kind of Johnny bandwagon as I am on, and they've been able to reach a couple rounds higher than I that that I did for Johnny Smith. So I've ended up taking the other Smith twice. That's Irv Smith, and he's another kind of deep sleeper of mine. He's going to tight end 22 overall, so you can wait until like the last two rounds of your draft and take Irv Smith if you miss out on. All the other tight ends. I have Mike. Just speaking of the other tight ends, I have Mike Jasicki in one league, Chris Herndon in one league, TJ Hawkinson in one league, Blake Jarwin in one league. So again, I'm just throwing some darts at these guys. Like whoever falls to like round 15, and and with these dart throws, you either miss the board completely or you hit the bullseye. You know, you're not really gonna know until the season begins. Uh, I drafted Jalen Rager on three teams, and I had to cut him on two of those teams after his injury, his his shoulder issue, to pick up. Chris Thompson, and I wanted to stash Jalen Rager on ESPN, but it won't give him the out label ESPN Walt. So I can't put him on IR, which is really, really frustrating. But lastly, I'll get to kickers in defense. And kickers in defense, you know, I've actually been aggressively targeting kickers early this year, not too aggressively. Like I'll, I'll wait for somebody to kind of break the seal. And take the first kicker. And as long as it's reasonable, as long as it's not like, I don't know, like round nine or ten, you know, I'll usually pounce. Like my kicker strategy has morphed so much over the years, and I value them more than I used to. And it's like the running joke in so many fantasy football leagues. Like the experts are just so hardcore about it. Like never take your kickers until the last round, like no matter what. And I just kind of disagree with that fundamentally. I used to agree. I used to always take a kicker last round, like regardless, and I was that guy who would just kind of roll my eyes at people taking kicker early, and sometimes I wouldn't even draft them. Like i just pick up somebody for the season, and it makes sense. The logic behind that, it seems to make sense at least, but I kind of had an awakening a couple years ago, a few years back, where I was having really bad kicker luck in a lot of my leagues. like I just didn't feel like I was getting the production that I wanted out of position. I felt like I was starting the wrong kicker each week. And I thought that I was pretty good at picking kickers based on their matchups, like playing the matchups, like good offenses, winning teams, positive game scripts, avoid bad weather. Like Historically, those are the types of kickers you want, and you want to be streaming. And it seems like if you pay attention to that kind of stuff, Like I do, then you would get some sort of small kicker advantage. I know they're unpredictable week to week, but but come on, and that that's what you're supposed to be going for in your kicker. But I was just like totally bombing the position each week. My kicker would score like three points. So at the end of the season, you know this frustrated me so much that at the end of the season I tallied my kicker. I tallied up my kicker production each week. Like I added up all my kicker scores each week, and and I wanted to combine that with not only the rest of the league and make sure, and and it was true. Like I was right. Like I was, I ranked 11th out of 12 in kicker scoring. And that obviously to me is unacceptable. And so I wanted to do something about it. So then I compared it to like just the kickers scores themselves. Like if you were to start the same kicker every week, and I noticed that I was scoring fewer points than like the top rated kickers. If you were to just start the top rated kickers every week, and that includes their bye week. Like, if I combined my kicker total uh, over, like, um, the 17 weeks of the fantasy football season, I would have, like, 133 points, that, at least that year, in that down year. And Gus, Steven Goskowski, the top-rated kicker, would have 157 points for the season. And he had a bye. Like, where I, I would get to replace my kickers, Koskowski had a bye where he tallied zero. So, at first, I said, okay, I'll just keep drafting kicker late. And then I'll just let it ride out for the season. Like, I'm just not going to play the matchups. And surely he'll outscore my mix and match method, my spread method of kickers. But that didn't work. So then I slowly started drafting, like, Steven Goskowski, Will Lutz, Greg Zerline in leagues, like in round, like, 13. And I noticed that having the elite kicker actually meant something to me. Not much, but it meant something. Because I didn't like scrambling to fill the position and play matchups each week when when I streamed the position. I didn't feel like dealing with that headache. It's just more to worry about, more decisions to make. And Goskowski and Zerline, and Lutz, and, and Harrison Buttkicker, and Justin Tucker, for the most part, were actually very consistent year to year, like way more than people think. So I just said, screw it. I'm done with this headache. I'm taking kickers in round 14 instead of round 17. And the experts, you know, will say that's so dumb. Like even, you know, even the people in the league will laugh at you when you're like the first or second person to take kicker. But the opportunity cost is so low. Like people overestimate their ability to draft well. Like they think higher of their draft picks than they are actually worth. Most of your draft picks in a, in a given season are trash. Like they're cut. Honestly, it's just the harsh reality of the situation and especially in rounds 13 through 17 the vast majority of the picks end up being totally irrelevant like cut by midseason after rotting away on your benches like total bust that's why they're going that late and every now and then there's like a Darren Waller or a Mark Andrews but like 10 out of 12 picks in each round rounds like 13 through 17 are huge misses anyway so the odds are very against you anyway that you're going to draft a hit there and also, let's assume that you do draft a hit. To say that you shouldn't take a kicker in round 13 is to assume that you could only get that hit that you passed up on in round like 13 or 14. But most of the time, like A.J. Dillon is a perfect example. Most of the time, if I really want A.J. Dillon, he's my sleeper that I think is going to be that hit. If I draft Justin Tucker like an elite kicker in round 14, most of the time A.J. Dillon makes it round 15 anyway. Like I'm not losing any value or any opportunity cost when I draft an elite kicker. If the guy that I pick the next round was going to be there anyway, if he was like 30 spots below rankings, and I'm comfortable or confident with the fact that I'm likely going to be ending up with that guy in my next pick anyway. I'm not losing any value. I'm not losing any opportunity cost. And elite kickers, by the way, are way more likely to hit at their position than people think. Like you start them every week and people argue, oh, well, they're just so unpredictable. But I don't know, man. Justin Tucker seems to be pretty freaking good every single year. What is it, like five years in a row now? Harrison Butt kicker, ever since Mahomes has been quarterback, pretty an amazing kicker, like last three years. I mean, with Patrick Mahomes, how could he not be? Will Lutz, with Drew Brees, Will Lutz has been pretty like awesome kicker, like for the last three or four years now. Steven Goskowski had like a ridiculous eight-year run of greatness with Tom Brady. So, yes, after the top like three or four kickers, yeah, they're pretty unpredictable. May as well stream. But shouldn't that be more of a reason to take an elite kicker? And people also just say, well, on average, it's only like a one to two point advantage each week of having a great kicker. It's not that much of an advantage. Um, Are you hearing yourself talk? Who doesn't want a one or two point advantage? That's the the most ridiculous argument. Cut. That's the most ridiculous argument ever. That's insane. Like, listen to what you're saying. Oh, it's only a one- or two-point advantage of having the top kicker. Uh, Yeah, sign me up. Sounds good to me. In round 14, I will take a one- to two-point advantage. Have you ever lost a game because you started a shit kicker? You ever lost a game by one or two points? I have. So, yeah, it also just saves me, again, the time and headache of having to scour the waiver wire each week with the best kicker matchup, or who I think it is each week. When I draft Justin Tucker or Harrison Butt kicker or Will Lutz or Steven Koskowski in the past, it's just a set it and forget it. So yeah, on my teams, I've ended up with three Justin Tuckers, one Will Lutz, and one Harrison Butt kicker. The other league I will have to stream because I missed out on the top options. But yeah, I draft my kicker in round 14, not round 17. Sue me. I think it's good strategy. And I, I realized that was a really extremely long kicker rant, but I have never talked about kickers on this podcast before. And I also felt like, you know, your drafts are now, you know, you got to get to talk about kickers and defenses now. And I felt like, you know, I needed to give that rant to justify my stance, right? Like, because this is very anti expert, like 99% of experts will disagree with my kicker strategy. So my passionate kicker stance, you know, I don't want you to think that I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm just a total fantasy novice for taking kickers early. I'm not taking them, you know, early. I'm usually, you know, if somebody, you know, pops a kicker cherry and takes their kicker in round 10, okay, I'm not going to just go take my next kicker as I want a lead kicker. There are still really, really good players in round 10. The opportunity cost is still high there in my opinion. I'm taking kickers when I'm, I'm not taking my kicker until it's to the point where I have a guy ranked like in, you know, like in the 170s and at this point, we're in the 140s in the drafts, and I think I can get this guy in the 170s anyway in the next round. So, yeah, I'm going to take my elite kicker and then take my deep sleeper next round anyway. That's like when I'm taking kickers. Like, you know, 13 at the earliest, round 14, 15, that's kind of the, the prime spot for me. Like, I, I, unlike other people, I actually want people to take kickers late because I want the elite kickers to last longer so I can be the person who ends up with one of them in rounds you know, 14 or 15, but yeah, I don't want, you know, now at least if you disagree with my kicker stance after having listened to all of that, uh, at least now, you know, you've heard my argument and now maybe you just don't think I'm just a total donkey, just taking kickers because I just like how they look in my lineup, taking kickers like in round nine. No, that's ridiculous. So, but lastly, I'll cover defense and I changed my strategy up with defense every year according to my research because sometimes I like certain defenses that are going late like New England last year and other times I like defenses that are going really early this year you know I'm not really in love with any defense honestly that's going late so I'm also okay with drafting the Steelers or the Bills defense early if I miss out on those like in like in round 13 I'm kind of just punting the position I'm not really confident about the New England Patriots defense this year they lost a lot of players due to opting out. I'm not. Also, they regressed towards the back half of last year. The Niners had a huge regression in the second half of last season, so I'm not really confident in the Niners either. The Ravens just, you know, yeah, they're they're probably my third choice for defense, but I'm not trying to, like, aggressively reach for them. Uh, the the Steelers and the Bills, if if the timing's right and it's there in, like, round 13, 14, 15, if they're on the board, yeah, I have no hesitation taking uh, the Steelers or the Bills. I kind of have a tear drop way after them to where if they're not there, I'm just honestly just going to punt the position completely pick one in the last round, just stream the spot. Uh, But the bills, let me give my brief uh, little argument here. You know, I actually don't have one share of the Buffalo bills yet, and it's not by choice. Like I actually really, really deeply regret passing on them in two leagues when I've taken other players and the bills I've wanted them. I've tried to sweat them out in, in, all four other leagues and they've just gotten taken like right before me and I just get really really pissed off. The Bills are a defense that I really really want. And because they open up with the Jets and most defenses that you draft you're going to cut at some point anyway, so you want to be targeting the favorable matchups to open the season. And the Bills, they're loaded on defense. Defensive line is stacked. Secondary is also loaded talent, very talented, very deep. But they open up with the Jets, and then the Dolphins, and then the Rams, and then the Raiders, and then the Titans. I mean, that is just such a soft opening schedule. And they play in a division, the AFC East, with Miami, the New York Jets, and New England. That's potentially six good matchups right there, depending on what how Cam Newton does in New England. They also have outdoor you know, snow and wind winter thing going on in Buffalo. So low offensive production in December in Buffalo. That's an added bonus. Uh, so the Bills are my DST one this season. And I'm okay with taking them in round 13 or 14. And if you miss out on them in Pittsburgh, again, I'm just waiting until the last round. Uh, I ended up with the Colts in one league because they're playing Jacksonville in week one. I ended up with the Eagles in two other leagues because they're playing the Washington football team in week one, and the Chargers in two other leagues because they are playing against, um, because they have a really talented defense. They're going against Joe Burrow in his first start, although I would feel a little bit uneasy about that, I don't know if Burr is just going to come light them up or if he's just going to look like a rookie in his first start. But the Chargers is pretty talented defense. I think the Seahawks is going is a defense that's going to surprise this season. Um, but their early schedule is just so brutal that you can't use them for like the first three or four weeks. So they're really undraftable. But the Seahawks, a name to keep an eye out on. And the Saints defense, they're going like DST9. If they get Jadavian Clowney, which I've heard that they very well might, if they get to Jadavion Clowney, I would want to scoop them up in drafts. Like, honestly, I'd probably take them right after the Bills, uh, Steelers, maybe Ravens, and then Saints. Uh, because they, even though they have a tough schedule, the Saints, you know, positive game script that will be a great team. They should be winning a lot of games, so they'll be able to pin their ear- ears back and just rush the passer and get turnovers and um, – and sacks. That's what you want in a defense. And that defensive line for the Saints, if they get clowny with Marcus Davenport, Sheldon Rankins, Cam Jordan, would just be you know David Onyemata just would be just so insanely good. Obviously Demario Davis, a linebacker in their secondary, is is freakishly good as well. Janoris Jenkins and Marshawn Lattimore at the two cornerback positions, and and three good safeties. Honestly, on this team, so. Okay, yeah, I regret not having the Saints defense and Bills defense on my teams the more I talk about it. So I hope that you got a feel for who's on my teams this year and who I'll be rooting for. And hopefully it will help with your decision-making process this weekend, especially my regrets, who I wanted more on my teams. And these are kind of what my teams have looked like and who I have a lot of exposure to. So I hope that will help out with your drafts this weekend. Good luck in your drafts. All right, and that'll conclude today's episode. Next week, I'm going to have a predictions podcast. The season is approaching, so bold predictions, Super Bowl prediction, all that kind of stuff. It'll be fun, so stay tuned for that on Tuesday morning. My 2020. draft board and strategy guide is published again on fantasylawguide.com. So check that out before your drafts. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, do me a favor, hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.